When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. For brand new episodes, you can come back every Thursday or subscribe to ensure you get them delivered straight to your chosen podcast feed. Now, Russell Crowe, Kevin Costner, Errol Flynn, Sean Connery. These are just some of the actors who have played Robin Hood in films over the years. But who was this man of English legend, whose name continues to be recognised worldwide centuries later? Well, helping us to understand the history of Robin Hood and his connection to English heritage sites that you can visit are our two guests for today. Hello, I'm Martin Heal. I am Professor of Late Medieval and Reformation History at the University of Liverpool. And hello, I'm Michael Carter. I'm a senior properties historian here at English Heritage. So, first question about Robin Hood then. How old are these stories? Who wants to go first? Uh, well, I'll get started. And the short answer is we don't actually know how old the stories are. They circulated orally. They weren't always written down. But the first reference that we have to stories or rhymes of Robin Hood is in a poem of the 1370s, quite a famous poem, by William Langland called Piers Plowman, and he mentions Robin Hood stories in, in that. It does, though, seem that the legend of Robin Hood was known quite a lot earlier than that, because there's um, a court record from the 1260s where a member of a criminal gang called William, son of Robert the Smith, is also given a nickname, William Rob Hood, and that implies that people knew about an outlaw character called Robin Hood way back in, in the mid-1200s. We can also say that some of the early stories contain material that seems to fit quite well into a 13th, late 13th, early 14th century context. So that, again, pushes the stories back a bit. But the first stories that we have date to the mid-1400s. So we don't actually have any stories before that date. But it does seem very likely that there were stories of Robin Hood that were circulating for quite a long time before the first ones that we actually have. Okay, so it kind of starts off as a poem, but then it morphs into other forms of literature. Can you pinpoint then the earliest written story? You've sort of said f the 1400s, but yes. can we pinpoint a specific date? The story that seems to be the earliest is um, quite an unusual one. It's a Latin story that's included in a chronicle written by a Scottish abbot. So not perhaps where we'd expect to find a Robin Hood story. And that's from the early 1440s. It's actually quite a dull story, not like the other tales. Robin is in a chapel hearing mass. He's informed that a sheriff is about to attack him, but he refuses to interrupt his devotions. And then, of course, he vanquishes his enemies. And this tale reads a bit like the kind of story that was used in sermons to illustrate a moral point. In this case, always put your religious duties first. So it may well actually have been used as a sermon story, perhaps in an attempt by the church to appropriate or sanitise Robin, um, who was already a, um, a quite a popular character by this point. 
Very interesting. Or perhaps even try and make criminals turn away from robbing and turn to religious devotion. Yes, because in this story, Robin doesn't rob anybody. He's an innocent victim and, and very pious. So yes, that, that does fit. Ah, so already there's uh, lots of different characterizations mm. of Robin Hood taking place. I just come in there actually. There's you know talking about date of the stories, and you know they have internal evidence, don't they, that helps us date them. And one of the interesting things, isn't it, Martin, is about monks and beards. <laughs> well, in one of the early stories, there's an abbot features as as one of the baddies of the stories, and he tells one of the other monks to get out of my beard, which means stop interfering when he complains about the abbot's kind of exploitation. And most of the pictures we've got of abbots that have beards are from the the early 1300s or earlier, not the later period. So that's an example of a little incidental detail that might suggest that the story is quite a lot older than the first versions that we have. I see. So can this idea of beards be pinpointed to a particular period? Not specifically, but bearded abbots are quite unusual after about the early 1300s in England. So it's just a, it's just suggestive rather than decisive. Curious. I've had good fun trying to pin down images of beardy monks after the middle of the 14th century. Very few and far between. So it's a really interesting little detail in there. And something that has cultural relevance today, doesn't it? Because beards are very much in fashion. So we've described then that um, the Robin Hood tales can take many forms, really. Poems, written stories, sermons. Do they take other forms as well? Yes, they do. So I think the standard form is a ballad. We can presume that the Robin Hood stories were sung by performers or minstrels. Quite a few of them are quite short and could be performed. But we also have instances of Robin Hood plays from the 15th century being performed by local people. And these plays were probably quite boisterous. They have leave space for fight scenes. So we can imagine quite a lot of pantomime fighting going on. So Robin Hood's stories are being told in, in different forms. And from the early 1500s, Robin Hood stories start to get printed. So some of the earliest stories to be printed in England, implying their popularity because printing was a commercial operation. Our Robin Hood stories, the jest of Robin Hood is printed about 1500. So from that date, you can also read Robin. And this starts a long history of, of, of Robin Hood in print, which obviously carries on today. And do some of these records of the plays exist still, either in written form or in printed form? Yeah, we have a, a manuscript play from about 1470, which has only got about 15 lines, which is why it seems likely that there's a lot of acting and fighting and other things going on around it. And then plays become very popular in the 16th century. And that, that becomes one of the main ways in which the Robin Hood legends develop through theatre in Shakespeare's time, which we might come on to a bit later. Well, what about the name? We've sort of touched a little bit about um, how it might have come about, but anyone looking at the name Robin Hood today might think, oh, it's a contraction of robbing hood, i.e. a thief wearing a hood. Is there anything in that? It's an, a nice theory, but I don't think so. It's actually quite a common name in the Middle Ages. And as Martin's already alluded to, it becomes a kind of an archetype, Robin Hood being a kind of an outlaw someone beyond the bounds of things. But the first reference we have to a Robin Hood in this kind of context, as Martin's already said, is in, I think it's in York in around about 1226, mentioned in some court roles. And you get a number of references to Robin Hoods as being guys who are up to no good, from Berkshire in the south, 
through to Yorkshire in the north, and we've been talking a lot about Yorkshire in the course of this podcast, from the 13th century through to the 15th century. And historians and antiquarians went to great length to try and identify historical Robin Hood, searching through historical records, court rolls especially. And they get quite excited when they find somebody called Robin Hood indicted for something, or when they would find references to Robin Hood being used in a generic sense. And there's a very, very good article published in the Yorkshire Archaeological Journal for 1944, I think it was. Yorkshire Archaeological Journal, then as now, is a very substantial scholarly journal. And it's called Robin Hood Identified. And it's about a Robin Hood who occurs in the Wakefield court rolls around about 1316. But whether or not it is the Robin Hood of the ballads and the rhymes, well, that is a completely different matter. I see. If we were looking at how Robin Hood started and how Robin Hood has developed in modern times, how different is the modern Robin Hood from this early version of the character? Because already the early version of the character seems to be kind of in flux. That's certainly true about Robin Hood being in in flux. There are different versions of Robin, even from the earliest times. But um, there are definitely themes that are familiar. So I think the early Robin Hood, in some respects, would be quite recognisable to modern audiences. So to begin with, Robin is an outlaw. He lives in the forest with a band of followers. They make their living by robbing passers-by, but of course only unjust passers-by. And they help people who are honest and, and in genuine need. Robin opposes and, of course, he inevitably vanquishes the Sheriff of Nottingham, um, who appears in a lot of the early stories and re- represents corrupt officials. And Robin also has a tragic end in the, um, the earlier stories, bled to death by a wicked prioress. So all those elements of the stories have survived and, um, and are recognisable. And there are other small details that um, people would, would recognise too. So from the start, Robin and his men wear green. Robin is an expert archer. He's the most skillful archer around. And also from the start, he's um, a very attractive character. He's generous. He's humorous and lighthearted. He's also quite irreverent. Of course, he's, he's opposing um, authority figures from the very start. I think it's important to add as well that there are some big differences as well. The Robin Hood, which we know today and has been transmitted in more recent times, well, his medieval piety hasn't come through. He has an especial devotion in the stories to the Virgin Mary, the Mother of Christ. In the stories, we've, we've heard about the generosity, yes, and him robbing some passers-by, but he doesn't specifically rob from the rich to give to the poor. Rich churchmen are one of his main targets, actually. And he's most definitely not a noble. He is of good, solid yeoman stock. That's the kind of middling sort. There's no trace of animosity between Normans and Anglo-Saxons that you get in some of the modern retellings. That were centuries ago, as far as the tellers of the medieval ballads were concerned, and hasn't really left any trace in them. And there's no good King Richard returning from the Crusades either. And no King John, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, not in the medieval bowels. We'll get, we'll get to what's happening in the 16th century later. Okay, interesting. Those are some obvious differences. Are there differences in Robin Hood's followers, his companions? Do some of these characters' names change over time? Do people come and go out of these stories? Yes, certainly. There are, again, similarities and differences in terms of Robin's band of followers. So Little John features from the start. And Little John is a really important, prominent 
figure in the early tales, and already he's Robin Hood's bad-tempered but loyal sidekick. We also have references, quite brief references, to Much the Miller's Son and to William Scatherlock, who's a prototype of the later Will Scarlet, and they're mentioned in passing, really, without any characterization. But we don't have, in the earlier stories, two very important characters of the, of the later Robin Hood canon. There's no Friar Tuck in any of the early ballads, although Friar Tuck does appear in a 15th century play, where he's again, um, he's already quite buffoonish. And Maid Marian isn't in any of the medieval stories. Robin doesn't actually have a love interest in any of the, the earlier stories. And Marian first appears in plays and stories of the late 1500s. And, and she's always the one that he's, I suppose, trying to rescue or something. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible to see Marion as replacing the Virgin Mary in the stories because the Virgin Mary features as an important character aiding Robin in the late medieval stories. And if you like, she is the woman he's devoted to. But when the Virgin Mary gets taken out of the stories at the time of the Reformation, which we'll come on to a little bit later, perhaps you need a new female character for Robin to serve and, and assist. And Marion fulfills that function. Let's focus on this medieval Robin Hood then. Many of us would associate him with Nottingham and Sherwood Forest. So did the medieval Robin live there or somewhere else? Well, I'm going to jump straight in here and come over as a patriotic Yorkshireman. and My vowels will flatten as I'm <laughs> saying this. But uh, no, Robin Hood is very... A, a lot of the action in the early ballads takes place not in Nottinghamshire, but in Yorkshire, southwest bit of Yorkshire called Barnsdale. And in fact, a key part of the uh, jest of Robin Hood, his death, takes place about eight miles or so from where I grew up as a little kid and kind of formed him as a medievalist at Kirklees Priory. Was a small house of um, nuns uh, from around about 1400. It was the Cistercian Monastery. Very little of it now remains, but the jest describes how he is bled to death by the prioress there. And gosh, like by the 1530s, at the very latest, the story has developed that he was buried at Kirklees, that from the 1560s, they're talking about the location of his grave. And I have indeed visited the location of Robin Hood's grave in the grounds of Kirklees Priory. I must, it must be said by special permission, it's not open to the public. And very little of it now remains. It's a good distance from the Priory. And there's the legend, of course, that the firing of the arrow to where uh, Robin will be buried. And the grave is a good distance away from the Priory buildings. And in, actually, it was in the 20th century, early 20th century, the owners of the site, a gentry family called the Armitages, were very interested in it. And they carried out experiments to see how far an arrow could be fired, and it was nowhere near where the location of the grave is. But the grave is interesting because it's recorded from the 17th century, and it does look like a 14th century grave slab, and it is inscribed with the name of Robert Hood on it. So they might have some basis, in fact, for a Robin Robert Hood was buried at the Priory. Was it moved to fit in with the legend? Very little of the gravestone now uh, remains was in the uh, 1840s. Navvies building a local railway or canal, I can't remember which, chipped it away in the belief that it was a cure for toothache. (laughs) Right, okay. 
I mean, it is, um, it's true, as, as Michael says, that Yorkshire is the setting for a lot of the early stories. But as a southerner who doesn't have a skin in this game, I think I should add for balance that he is also sometimes located in Nottinghamshire in the medieval tales. So in Robin Hood and the Monk, one of the early 15th century tales, Robin is, is explicitly based in Sherwood Forest. And he goes into Nottingham because he wants to attend mass in the church of St. Mary there. So even in these early stories, again, we see Robin's piety as an important part of his, his character. And then he goes to the Church of St. Mary and he's captured and needs to be rescued. And Nottingham also features briefly in another story, The Jest of, of Robin Hood. And of course, Robin's nemesis is the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's not the Sheriff of, of York. So we see here quite an interesting inconsistency in the early stories. Barnsdale, as Michael says, is certainly the most prominent, but Nottingham also and Sherwood also do feature. I might add that um, Robin Hood was very popular throughout late medieval England, north and south, also in Scotland too. And the first reference to a play of Robin Hood that we have actually comes from Exeter in the 1420s. So I think we Southerners also have a kind of stake in, in the early Robin Hood as well. Mm. A man of great appeal, but of great mystery and sort of slipperiness as well. It's quite interesting how he is all things to all people, really. What about the name that he is sometimes given in, in, in various different stories? I mean, if you look at the... Russell Crowe film of around 2010, I think it was. He's Robin of Loxley. So where's Loxley? Well, Loxley does go quite far back, but not as far back as, as the medieval stories. So the first time that Robin is associated with Loxley, as far as we can tell, is in a biography that was written of Robin Hood. Somebody tried to write a biography of him in the late 1500s. And this describes Robin as born at Loxley. So that was his birthplace, according to this late 16th century biography. And interestingly, the writer says Loxley is in Nottinghamshire, but then he adds, according to others, it's in Yorkshire. So even again here, we see them fighting over um, whether Robin should be associated with Nottinghamshire or Yorkshire, right in the centre of his back. And I, but I'm sure Michael would want to jump in here and tell us where Loxley actually is. I, I'm sorry for jumping in there with my over-enthusiasm and my uh, patriotic Yorkshireness coming in there. Uh, Loxley is most definitely in Yorkshire and it is now a semi-rural suburb of Sheffield. So it's not that far away from Barnsdale. And I should actually add that you know there are places in Barnsdale, a bit of southwest Yorkshire, associated, mentioned in the Robin Hood stories that are still identifiable to this day, including a location where Robin is said to have robbed the potter in one of the tales. And a brilliant historian called Barry Dobson, back in the 1970s, discovered that the location of these robberies taking place is still preserved in a field name in that locality. So broadly speaking, for people who are not too familiar with England, it's sort of the centre of England, the Midlands, or it's the northeast kind of area. Well, in the Middle Ages, it was definitely regarded as northern England. The boundary between northern and southern England in the Middle Ages was the River Trent. So the county of Nottinghamshire was very much counted as northern England. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, today it would be regarded as North Midlands, the very southern limits of northern England. Interesting. And of course, the county boundaries are constantly changing, aren't they? What happens in the medieval Robin Hood stories, broadly speaking? Well, there are some common plot lines in the medieval stories that we could identify and isolate. So in some of the early tales, Robin assists somebody who has been exploited or unjustly treated. 
So in the jest of Robin Hood, he helps a poor knight who has um, lent some money to an abbot, and the abbot is trying to foreclose the debt and, and take control of his land. Another common plot line might be summarised as Robin meets his match. So in these stories, Robin encounters somebody on the way somewhere. They quarrel and they have a fight. Robin invariably loses the fight because he's a much better archer than he is a fighter. And then he good-humouredly invites his assailant to join the band as a good fellow. And so this character becomes part of Robin Hood's gang. And then there are other tales, a bit like the one I mentioned earlier, told by the Scottish abbot, where Robin is being hunted down. So he's an outlaw. He's been placed outside the protection of the law. So it's legal for somebody to capture or indeed kill him. It's usually the Sheriff of Nottingham. In one story, it's Guy of Gisborne who's come to capture him. And in these stories, Robin often is in jeopardy. He might be captured, but then rescued by Little John. And he usually ends up by defeating and sometimes killing his, his um, opponent. So in some stories, he kills the Sheriff of, of Nottingham. I've mentioned the Virgin Mary is quite a key figure in some of the early stories. And she provides supernatural aid to Robin against his enemies, especially when he's being opposed by immoral clergy. She helps Robin over the clerics, which is quite interesting. And then finally, I've already mentioned the plot line of Robin dying. So the tragedy of Robin is there in a number of the early stories where he ends up being betrayed and killed. And in fact, the prioress of Kirklees is described as a relative of Robin, which adds to the betrayal and the pathos of, of his demise. It's interesting how these people have been killed off in some cases. That sort of ends the story, doesn't it, really? So you don't really want to be killing off characters. Oh, he always returns, though. Yeah. <laughs> like Bobby Ewing and Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> it was all a dream. Or, you know, you just create a, a spin-off or a prequel or something like that, or you just reinvent the story, don't you? So, Like James Bond, I think we'll see him. Uh, yes, of yeah. course. Yeah, spoiler alert, everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how popular were these Robin Hood stories during the medieval period? Well, that's a really interesting question because Robin seems to have been remarkably popular and extremely well-known in the, the Middle Ages and the 16th century. And we can see this in a number of ways. We have quite a lot of complaints by medieval preachers and moralists that people much prefer listening to Robin Hood stories rather than going to mass or reading devotional work. So a lot of the early comment about Robin is actually people complaining that he's too popular and people are enjoying him rather than doing something that they, you know, that they think they should be doing. Um, Robin Hood comes up in lots of proverbs and sayings. So he's clearly a, a proverbial figure by the 1400s. And also, quite unusually, he seems to have been popular very throughout the whole of, of English society. So he have a very wide social appeal, whereas most of the literary figures are either popular at a kind of elite end or a, or a more or a general audience. So we, for instance, the Robin Hood play that I mentioned earlier was owned by a Norfolk gentleman and performed in his gentleman's household. We also know that Henry VIII was a big fan of Robin Hood. There's an interesting detail in a chronicle of the 16th century, which describes how right at the start of his reign, the king and 12 of his courtiers dress up in Robin Hood costumes. So they wear hoods, they wear short coats, they wear hose. So this is like Mel Brooks' men in tights. And they burst into Catherine of Aragon's chamber to give her a fright. No doubt a great general hilarity. And then there's plenty of evidence that Robin Hood was popular amongst ordinary people as well. So we have lots and lots of records from the early 1500s of midsummer festivals that parishes put on to entertain themselves and also for fundraising. And this might include Robin Hood performances and plays. But also Robin seems to have been used as a, as a really good fundraiser. So what would happen is the young men of the parish, one or two would be nominated 
They would dress up as Robin Hood and Little John. They would give out badges and they would go around and, and collect money for good causes. So if your church roof needed repairing, you might have a Robin Hood event to collect money. And Robin seems to have been perfect for fundraising, partly because everybody immediately recognized his costume and had goodwill towards it. So a bit like Father Christmas today, you don't need to explain what you're doing. People understand it straight away. And also, you don't want to be associated with the enemies of Robin Hood. So if a Robin Hood asks you to give some money or pretends to rob you in a kind of game, you're quite a bad sport if you say no. So Robin seems to have been a really great way for local fun, but also to raise money for good causes. The stories have changed over time. We've covered this, you know, really from the start, haven't we? What about this issue of the Reformation that you touched on, um, Martin? And, and just remind us what the Reformation means for people who aren't familiar with the term. Well, the Reformation is a, is a major religious, social, cultural change or cataclysm happening in the 16th century across Europe, where the traditional form of, of understanding the Christian religion is, is challenged in a wide range of ways. And a lot of the, the ways that people worshipped, the doctrines that they accepted were rethought. So Protestants wanted to have a much more Bible-based form of Christianity, whereas the traditional Catholic Church had drawn on a wide range of traditions and, and ideas for centuries. So um, a big controversy, which led to all kinds of religious wars between Protestants and Catholics, but led to a rethinking, at least in countries like England, where Protestantism quickly became dominant about how, how you should practice as a Christian. And Robin Hood was caught up in this because, as I mentioned, Robin Hood was a pious Catholic in the early tales. He was devoted to the Virgin Mary, whereas Protestants wanted to downplay the Virgin Mary. So the Virgin Mary is taken out of the Robin Hood stories and, as I mentioned, made Marian in some ways replaces her. And we also see from the, the start of the Robin Hood stories that Robin Hood does rob abbots. So there's a kind of anti-clerical element to the stories. And Protestants really enhance this part of the Robin Hood legend. So in the early tales, he just attacks unjust clergy. But we find in the, the 16th century, 17th century Robin Hood stories, all clergy become his enemies. So all medieval clergy, all Catholic clergy become his enemies. So in one story, we're told that Robin Hood, whenever he captured monks or friars, would castrate them because um, he wanted to stop them getting women pregnant. So we get a real hostility towards the Catholic clergy in some of these Reformation-era English Protestant Robin Hood stories. Michael, you know a lot about um, monasticism, don't you? you? You are, that is really your specialist subject. So if abbots are getting local women pregnant, isn't that a sign of corruption? Shouldn't they be chased? Well, I mean, Martin's a great monastic expert, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm greatly in his debt of Martin's scholarship. There are stories of misbehaving abbots in the Middle Ages, but it gets really played up at the time of the Reformation, and especially in the and its aftermath, when monasticism is no longer really present in England. Just a few Catholic Benedictine, Franciscan or Dominican monks here trying to deal with the spiritual needs of the small number of English Catholics. And it's something that is readily believable to the Protestant imagination. And also the, the trope of Friar Tuck, that, who becomes associated with Fountains Abbey, which was a Cistercian monastery. And Friar Tuck is most definitely not a Cistercian. He's an itinerant friar. But there's a misunderstanding of the roles and identities of various religious orders. But the anti-monastic aspect, the anti-traditional religion 
religious aspects is very much there in the later ballads. And each era rewrites its Robin Hoods to deal with the preoccupations of that time, as we see with the film versions, the TV versions that are made today. And actually, we can see that, interestingly, with another early modern, so 16th, 17th century development of the Robin Hood story, because he becomes much more gentrified, much more respectable in some of the late 16th century tellings, particularly plays, Elizabethan plays written by Anthony Munday, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare and was writing plays for quite well-to-do audiences in late Elizabethan England. And uh, Munday turns Robin Hood into a dispossessed aristocrat. So he's no longer the yeoman of the medieval stories. He's uh, the Earl of Huntingdon, who has been unjustly deprived of his wealth and, and power. And it's also, interestingly, Anthony Munday who firmly places Robin for the first time in the reign of Richard I. So we've mentioned that in the medieval stories, Robin isn't really given a specific chronological setting. He's just kind of fairly timeless. But Munday places him in, in Richard I's reign. So that's 1189, sorry, yeah, 1189 to 1199. And Prince John becomes the enemy. And actually, we can see how this fits his gentrifying agenda of making Robin more respectable as well, because this means that Robin can oppose corrupt authorities represented by Prince John while still being loyal to the king. So he's, he's not too dangerous. He's still a, a loyal figure, but he's opposing a, a corrupt interloper, if you like. So there's good reasons why fixing Robin Hood in Richard I's reign, as of course we now associate him, works for, for this new early modern posher Robin Hood. But also, um, it's a bit unfortunate for Friar Tuck because um, friars weren't actually formed until the early 1200s. So by moving Robin Hood back to the late 12th century, poor old Friar Tuck becomes an anachronism who shouldn't be in the stories because um, there's no friars in, um, in 12th century Europe. And then just to come in, what about John Major, the wonderfully named John Major? Not the one that most people today will be The former prime with, minister. But, uh, <laughs> a Scottish author in the early 16th century. What role does he play, Martin, in the development of the, of the stories? Well, John Major just leads to Robin very briefly. In, this is in uh, writing, he was, he was a scholar writing in the 15, 10s, 1520s. And he has a very brief mention of Robin Hood in one of his his writings, and he describes Robin as, a, as, an, as an aristocrat. And he also actually says that Robin robbed to give to the poor. So that's the first hint that, of both of those two stories. So again, it, it, yeah, so Monday may have been drawing on earlier legends, and, it, and it, it underscores the way in which, from quite an early date, Robin Hood was existed in various forms and could become all things to all men. That's it, isn't it? In everything you're describing, both of you, I'm hearing various characteristics that could quite easily be lent to some other people from the medieval period, for example, knights, or even in later times when people are exploring the seven seas, it's going to be privateers, or it's going to be maybe like a spy, as in a James Bond type character, or just this vigilante, like a Jack Reacher kind of character. So I suppose all of these modern characters really sort of stem from Robin Hood, you know, even the likes of Batman, I suppose. I think Batman is a really interesting comparison. <laughs> Batman is, is a vigilante in the same way as, as Robin Hood is. Batman is endlessly adaptable. You can have lots of different versions of Batman and that, and that enables his longevity. Um, every generation can mould Batman to their own or Robin Hood to their own situation. So you can have new baddies, new kinds of corruption. So they can be reinvented and reimagined. 
they're figures who are kind of everyman figures who step outside the law to defend right and a, and a greater moral good. And yeah, they can be easily molded and changed for different situations. And I, I think um, I think Robin Hood is a bit like the Batman of the, the 15th century in many ways. Mm. Very interesting that Martin just talks there about stepping outside the law and Robin Hood is an outlaw and it's become quite romanticized. But being a medieval outlaw was not a romantic experience whatsoever. And they were some thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant characters were outlawed. And what does outlaw mean? It means you are outside the law. And being a medieval outlaw would have been a thoroughly miserable experience. I don't think it would have been living a jolly life in the Greenwood and getting up to Merry Jake and, you know, doing the odd good deed to settle some scores as well. It was a life of extreme violence and extreme peril. Oh, it's um, a fascinating sort of springboard for a dissertation, isn't it, really? Lots of different strands to the whole story. I mean, there's an enormous literature on Robin Hood going right back to the 16th century. And uh, some really excellent recent books have appeared as well. And it's very interesting how many of them have been written by Yorkshiremen. Does Robin Hood have any basis in reality? That's kind of a broad question and open to various interpretations. But uh, was there some sort of original person who was the springboard for all of these fantastic stories? At least since the 18th century, if not before, people have been trying to pin down a historical Robin Hood. And I think the consensus today is that that cannot be done. That he's a more of an archetype. He is certainly a very, very popular figure. That pinning down a, a real outlaw with that name, I mean, people have tried. They've found some candidates. But the story... The legend of Robin Hood is so rich and provides so many insights into medieval society, our own view of our past over the centuries, uh, you know, and how, as we've already alluded to, each era will write its own Robin Hood. Anything else to add, Martin? Well, I think one of the interesting things about um, the outlaw tales that we've got from the Middle Ages, and we've got quite a number of stories about other outlaws, it's quite a popular form of, of literature. But some of them are based on real people. So there were quite a lot of stories about Herawad the Wake, who was the Finland leader of opposition against William the Conqueror. Stories about Eustace the Monk, who was an outlaw who started off as, as a monk and then became a pirate and um, sort of changed sides, serving King John of England and the King Louis of France. So these are real people and stories, then sort of legendary myth- mythologized stories become attached to them and circulate. So we do have examples of of outlaws, outlaw literature that is based on real people. But we also have quite a few outlaw stories where clearly there's, there's no sense that these people were real. Adam Bell was a popular 15th century outlaw story, tell of Gamelin from a little bit earlier. So Robin conceivably could fall into either of those camps, and we simply don't know. But as Michael says, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to establish. Robert Hood is a very common name in the Middle Ages, and I, think, I don't think it would be, ever be possible to pin down a, a historical Robin Hood. And we also might add that um, quite a lot of the Robin Hood stories borrow plot lines from other stories. So sometimes we see similar stories and tales in other outlaw literature. There are miracle stories that seem to have found their way into into Robin Hood tales. There are sermon illustrations that the tales seem to be based on. So 
I don't think there's any any reason to think that the actual plot lines in in Robin Hood are based on real events. Robin seems to be a vehicle for attaching good stories to and and turning them into into fun, enjoyable tales, rather than actually telling us about thing real events that actually happened. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting with Kirkley's Priory as well that um, there was an attempt to identify the prioress who bled him to death, and one uh, Elizabeth Staunton becomes the main candidate whose grave slab was documented and recorded at Kirklees around about the same time as Robin's. And then it becomes conflated with these what are sort of medieval equivalents of Ofsted inspections from hell, you know. A leading cleric would go in and inspect conduct within the monastery and there was a number of damning visitation records from Kirklees in the 14th century and it's all this corrupt nunnery and oh gosh, you know, it's readily understandable that this prioress would have been bumping off Robin, but it really it doesn't stand up to any serious scrutiny whatsoever. Mm. So Robin Hood really lives in our minds, really, and lives on celluloid and on paper and in various files, I suppose, in, in vaults. He's not a real person, but he can be lots of different people as well, which is a really interesting idea. How close can we get to this idea of Robin Hood if we want to sort of feel his presence at an English heritage site? I think that the evidence of his popularity in in the Middle Ages, as Martin's been describing, suggests that if you go to any English heritage site with 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 a medieval history, you will probably be somewhere where Robin Hood would be known. And I think that's also illustrated by some medieval documents that mention sites associated with Robin Hood. Uh, One that stands out for me is a document from Monk Breton Priory in South Yorkshire. So it's not very far at all from Barnsdale, where a lot of the Robin Hood action takes place. And a stone of Robin Hood is referred to in 1422. And it it was obviously a very, very well-known local landmark. For instance, in 1487, when King Henry VII is making a progress to the north, he meets the Earl of Northumberland close to the stone of Robin Hood and, and on the estates of Monkbreton Priory. And in 1540, two stones not far away from Whitby Abbey are mentioned, uh, which are called Little John and Robin Hood. And that's indicative of something that happens, that's happening across England, that local landmarks become associated with Robin Hood and bits of his legend. There's also a possibility that one of the manuscripts containing one of the early ballads or references to Robin Hood might have been in the library at Bury St Edmunds, but the evidence for that is a little bit shaky. But, you know, I do think he was so well known that if you want to invoke the spirit, evoke the spirit of Robin Hood, visit an English heritage site and let your imagination run wild whilst you're there. As we sort of begin to close out our conversation, gents, why is Robin Hood still a household name today in the 21st century with all this technology? Well, he certainly seems to have survived better than any other character from the the Middle Ages. I suppose King Arthur is the only close rival. He was also a popular literary figure back in the 15th century. So I guess Robin must represent something that people of different generations find attractive. He's a hero fighting for justice for the poor and the weak. He defies corrupt authority. He gives powerful exploiters their just desserts. He breaks the rules, but for a, a wider good. So there is there is something timeless about 
about Robin, I think, in the way that and, and what he represents. And he was also an action hero from the very start. And the stories and the plays were always more exciting and more action driven than they were literary. And I guess this too possibly makes him popular and, 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 and enables his popularity to endure. And I think they're pliable as well, that right from the very beginning, there are some, lots of common themes in the medieval ballads. But you know, even in the 16th century, early 16th century, they're starting to adapt. They continue to adapt to the 17th century. They're responding to wider religious, political and social developments. And even in our own lifetime, the way that Robin Hood has been portrayed, the stories that are associated with him have been changing. And as I said, you know, he's capable of being constantly rewritten. We touched on this earlier about um, his similarities to other characters who've, who've been invented and who are more recent. Are there any other sort of characters that people would know who you, who you would list who have Robin Hood traits within them? Well, I think Batman is perhaps the most obvious or the, the closest Perhaps we can make links with the popularity of, of gangster movies as well. Gangsters are glamorous outlaws who live by their own rules and take what they want but still live within their own moral code. So this this notion of people who are bad boys but still uh, we're fascinated by them. So there might be a small parallel there. Yeah, he's he's an attractive bad boy, isn't he? And bad but not too bad unless you're one of the people in his sights. And then, but there is that thing as well, that, you know, that, one thing that doesn't come across too much in like cartoon versions of Robin Hood and to an extent some of the films is just how violent some of the early ballads actually are. And I, one thing that always <laughs> the poor page boy in Robin Hood and the monk getting killed. You know, what did he do wrong? And, you know, there is this threat, undercurrent of threat and this undercurrent of violence even in the medieval stories. And it reminds you about what outlawry really was like. Mm. The Guy Ritchie film is the latest um, one that was on the cinema screens and it, it didn't do so well. I think the previous Robin Hood with Russell Crowe has sort of aged better with time. Do you think, given the lack of success with the Guy Ritchie version and starring Taron Egerton, that perhaps Robin Hood's popularity is on the wane or...? Yeah, I think Robin's lasted 650 years or more without going out of fashion. So as long as there's corruption and exploitation in our society and our politics, I think that figures like Robin Hood will, will maintain an appeal. So forever, that means. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, join us to uncover the remarkable story of Margaret Cavendish. Margaret lived through a period of incredible political upheaval and uncertainty. And she would have been 19 at the start of the English Civil Wars in 1642, when King Charles I and Parliament tussled for control of England. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>